You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. We are underway. Glenn Lowry here, Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. I am professor of economics and of international public affairs at Brown University. The Watson Institute of International Public Affairs sponsors Glenn Show. And I'm here uh, with uh, Robert Woodson, senior Robert Woodson, uh, who is uh, founder uh, and uh, president of the Woodson Center, uh, formerly the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, who is a uh, old and dear friend of mine, uh, a community activist, I believe I could say, uh, a winner decades ago of one of those MacArthur Prize fellowships, uh, a uh, uh a man who works with grassroots organizations throughout the country to try to advance empowering people to try to advance the well-being of uh, of uh, struggling people in this country. And Bob, welcome to the Glenn Show. Pleased to be here, Glenn, as always. Did I get anything wrong in your intro, man? No, that's that's good enough. You know, Pastor like <laughs> Paul said, "Who were you before you were baptized?" That's what's important. <laughs> Okay, well, I want to just, if you don't mind, uh, amplify that introduction just a little bit by saying that I'm honored to have you with me this morning, that you are a great man. You are an African-American and an American leader uh, who's been around for a while and who's got a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience. And um, I just feel that uh, it's a good thing to be able to talk to you and talk to you in public um, about the issues of the day. Um, I should mention right off the bat that uh, the Woodson Center has been a leader in developing a, uh, a robust uh, voice in the public in public education debate engendered by the 1619 Project of the New York Times on, on the slavery and the American founding uh, through uh, the instrument of what you have inaugurated, which is the 1776 Project at the Woodson Center. And I definitely want to give you an opportunity to tell people a little bit about that. But if you just bear with me for a moment, Okay, um, I want to I want to uh, um, take the opportunity at this critical time. We have a COVID nineteen epidemic. It has mobilized the country in an effort to try to um, stem the tide of this invasion, this viral invasion, and this public health emergency. It has created profound tension and and and, and distress on our institutions. Uh, It is killing people that must not go unmentioned. And uh, it has raised with an election looming, a presidential election, some of the most contentious and difficult kind of back and forth. And I just think it's valuable to look to our elders. Excuse me, Bob. I'm glad to be able that you could say that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just stop. I'll just stop. Why don't you tell people, please, a little bit about the work that you have been doing at the Woodson Center and then perhaps a little bit about the 1776 Project, and I can chime in with a question from now and then. And then I would like us to spend some time uh, before we're done talking about the state of uh, of African-American people, uh, the nature of the struggle, uh, the character of leadership, and and the the narratives that are uh, uh, abroad in the land in terms of how we Black people are uh, thinking about our situation. I don't know if that's too much to try to cover in no. one situation. Well, I think in the interest of time, let me just give you a very uh, a four-minute snippet on my background, and I think that's just important. 
Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, and uh, my dad died when I was nine, leaving my mother with a fifth-grade education to raise five children in a troubled neighborhood. It was troubled, but it was also a neighborhood that had 90% of homes with a man and a woman raising children. Um, what year was that, Bob, if I may ask? 1937. I was born in 1937. I just turned 83. Uh, delighted to be able to say that. <laughs> Praise uh, God, as we used to say, Bob. Because yes. <laughs> no, everybody but, is not going to get there. Let's just be clear about that. No, but but also, I just think I was, um, so given that kind of background, I had to rely on my friends. I had a group of about six friends who are, who are close to this day. Three of us are no longer here. But when they graduated from high school before me, I was left unaffiliated. In my neighborhood, you don't grow up like that. So I quit and went into the military uh, at 17. But in there, I found myself. They trained me. I went to, I was in the space program. And I uh, was, went to, uh, got my GED in the military and came out. And my form of affirmative action was driving 30 miles a day to a full-time job and going to college uh, full time. And so that was my firm affirmative action. Thank God I didn't uh, come along to affirmative action. Uh, but as a consequence, I got involved, uh, finished uh, undergraduate school and working in a juvenile jail locked behind three doors uh, with young 65 juveniles in there from gang murder to truancy. But they were the same kids I grew up with. And so I kind of fell in love and had a kind of burning bush experience. Uh, six of those boys I would have adopted if I had the means to do so. So they were there because of their circumstance, but there were some there because of their values. So long story short, I graduated, uh, got involved in in master's in social work, and then I went to work in the foster care system and saw how that system was destroying children, got involved in the civil rights movement, having led demonstrations, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, the home of Baird Rustin. But in in doing so, I left the movement, man, very disappointed following the death of Dr. King when I realized that a lot of people who suffered most didn't benefit from the change, that low-income blacks were used as the bait for attracting programs and and, and relief. But when the benefits came, it went to middle-class blacks like myself and not to the people in whose name it was, was demanded. Okay, let me just interrupt for a minute, but you were telling us about, you know, your background. I want you to continue. I just want to, I just want to pause for a moment and ask, because these years, these years in the 1960s, the years of great society and equal opportunity programs, uh, these are formative, uh, this is a formative period. Uh, the beginning of the expansion of welfare, and a lot of people would say that welfare dependency was not a healthy thing for the social uh, fabric of the African American community. Uh, the beginning of the transformation of the civil rights movement from a universalist, uh, I have a dream uh, speech kind of uh, movement into a black power movement. And, you know, I was going to ask you what you thought about Malcolm X, how how he factored in these years, because these are the very years when uh, his ministry was uh, was uh, powerful. And uh, because I think that relates, and excuse me for interrupting you, I want to hear your story about the contemporary time, because some of those same fissures, I think I see in African-American leadership and voice, uh, even in the present day. So, you know, 
<laughs> How'd you react to the radicals of your time? I'm talking about the black radicals of Stokely Carmichael's. Well, there, there was a time that I was a part of them, but what was very uh, important at that time, Glenn, is the quality of the debate within the black community. We had Dr. King, I Have a Dream. You had Malcolm X, who was challenging. There you had the Black Panther Party, who were insurrectionists. You had the uh, Republic of New Africa that said we should have a separate state within. Now, there was a was vigorous debate within the black community. Even the civil rights movement fractured on the issues of whether we should engage in civil disobedience. Uh, the lawyers in Atlanta believed that we should seek redress through the courts. But the students at Greensboro said, no, we want to demonstrate. And so there was a lot of fracturing, healthy fracturing of the community as we sought our way forward. Uh, when Dr. King merged the civil rights movement with the peace movement, he was called a communist by Carl Rowan, the liberal journalist for the Washington Post. Uh, but Dr. King prevailed. And so, but there was rigorous debate, but there's also standards of behavior as well. You could not be a participant in the civil rights movement if you were drunk or if you were uh, rude to people. We had standards of conduct. The reason that Rosa Parks was chosen is because she was a, had middle-class values. But, but, but what I witnessed, when that disappointed me, that caused me to leave, was on the whole issue of forced busing for integration. I felt it was wrong. I felt it was anti-black. So, and I felt that uh, we should be, uh, and so we, uh, I, I left on that, but also I led demonstrations outside of a pharmaceutical company. And when they desegregated, they hired nine black PhD chemists. And when we asked these brothers and sisters to join us, they said, we got these because we were qualified, not because of what you all did. So I realized that there was a huge class split in the black community. And so after that happened two or three times, I left the movement, and then I watched how, the, how our black politicians uh, morphed into, I mean, our black civil rights leaders became democratic politicians at a time when the poverty program was expending $22 trillion. So they became mayors and, and administrators of those funds. Okay, and okay. That's let, let, I saw the corruption occur. Excuse me again for interrupting, and, and I just want to, there's so much information that's coming out. You left, okay? That's the first thing. You left the movement and struck out in a new direction. You were uh, on the other side of the busing debate from the civil rights community for yes. reasons that you thought would even had to do with being anti-Black. You saw a class issue in the civil rights struggle. Uh, as you came to see that people on the streets were not always the ones getting the benefits. People in the suites were the ones that were getting the benefits. Absolutely. Uh, and you saw bureaucracy emerge, uh, uh, institutionalized, dug-in kind of profession of advocating on behalf of black people, but not really being accountable to black people. Absolutely. There's a, a run on my wall. I have a framed headline from the Washington Post. October 29, 1965, written by reporter Bill Raspberry. And the banner headline is, Poor Negroes are not benefiting from the gains of the civil rights movement. And that has, has, has driven me from that time to today. And that is profoundly true because of the $22 trillion spent over 50 years on the poverty programs, 70 cents of every dollar goes not to the poor, but those who serve the poor. 
they ask which problems are fundable, not which ones are solvable. Another fact, Glenn, only two out of 10 whites with college education works for government. Six out of 10 blacks with college education works for government. So our black middle class is anchored in the public sector that is responsible for and depends upon having large numbers of dependent people to serve. Oh, okay, well, hold on just a minute, Bob. So you know this. When I was coming up, working at the post office was one of the best jobs that a Negro could have. That the uh, impact on Black communities of uh, professionals, social workers, teachers, lawyers uh, who work for the government has been very significant. You can't possibly be indicting public employment across the board with respect to its impact on the African-American community, can you? It's not a matter of indicting. It's a matter of facing the reality of what it is. I don't care how compassionate you may be about helping people, but if your career depends upon having someone else dependent, Glenn, that is a reality we must discuss. You don't have to attribute any blame for anybody, but we need to face it and say, what can we do that will ensure that middle class people have make a decent living? But how can we do it in such a way it, it's not harmful to other people? We well, I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. I mean, but look how you turn the tables. You made the fact that I'm trying to help the homeless into an indictment of my motive. You've now no, no. said you've now said that because I get a salary for helping the homeless, I'm dependent on their being homeless. And I don't think that's fair. It may or may not be true in any particular instance, but the the very fact that I get my salary from helping people doesn't mean that I have no interest in in uh, seeing them set free from their condition. Absolutely. In other words, what I'm saying that we are locked in an institutional arrangement that causes good compassionate people to do bad things with regard to their neighbors. That we don't have to attribute uh, 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 denigrating them for door, but we need to face it and say and say what it is. If, for instance, if a child comes into foster care and that only 3% of these kids have problems, psychological dysfunction, but as they move from home to home by policy and they deteriorate, the reimbursement rate goes up. And so the more they, we, we deteriorate, the more valuable they are as a commodity. That's a reality, Glenn, that we've got to face without trying to attribute blame to anybody. But we can't solve the problem if we don't face it. But I really think, look, I worked inside of the Urban League for five years. This is something no one's ever reported. The Nixon gave the Urban League national $93 million when he was president to address poverty. $93 million. Think about that in today's dollars. The, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Rockefeller Brothers also contributed massively to that movement. And then ask yourself, what happened? I worked there, worked there at the end that I can tell you what happened. Yeah, I'm sure that there are a lot of instances where money was thrown at problems and, and nothing really came of it, especially coming out of the late 60s and the early 70s. But I'm, I'm wondering how, uh, uh, what you're talking about. I was just cataloging and as you were talking about your career, you know, your, uh, how you came to where you are. 
that you, you, you broke, you broke from the civil rights movement, that you were very uncomfortable about busing because you thought it kind of undermined African-American autonomy. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but uh, that uh, you became very suspicious of the welfare state. Uh, so where are you now? What What is this come to? What, okay, what does this come make, to? Let me just make this point. because that's In 1973, I was sent by the Urban League to Boston to monitor the the case of, of busing when that was being debated before Judge Garrity, right? Judge Garrity asked the people suffering the problem in, in, in Mattapan, what do they want? There were months of meetings. The grassroots leaders and parents said, we want to strengthen neighborhood schools, give us a disproportionately more money per capita so we can improve our schools and create centers of excellence. But what the lawyers told Judge Garrity, the middle class guys from Harvard and other who did not have their children on their buses, told Judge Garrett, to hell with what the neighborhood people want, bust them. Not a damn a scholar or a lawyer had their children on those buses. It was low-income people. And white parents said, bust them into these schools, they'll graduate as dumb as our kids, because you are moving them from a superior black high school into an inferior white school in the name of integration. I debated this before the New York Bar Association with Julius Chambers. Uh, Harvard graduate, lawyer, a fine man, man. An yeah, the late Julius Chambers. He's passed late, away. Yeah. A, a, a honorable man. Julius and I debated this before the New York Bar Association. And I said, Julius, if we have two scenarios, A, where there's an all-black school, there's a presence of educational excellence, and school B is where there's integrated and diminished excellence, where should we send our children? He said, to school B. I said, then you and I have no more to debate. You see, so what? <laughs> okay, 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 hold on. I got to stop you, Bob. I got to stop you. Because uh, it's, it's very rich, very rich. I got to ask you this, okay, because Justice Clarence Thomas, all right, I'm talking now about the U.S. Supreme Court because I have sure. to link this to the actual things that are happening on the ground, okay? Okay. Uh, there's a philosophical debate amongst African-Americans. It goes back a long way. It goes all the way back to Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, and all that kind of stuff. I know you know all about that. I'm not going to try to lecture here. What I want to say is what you have said just now about the capacities of black communities, about the anti-democratic character of the elite-led voice of African-American advocacy in, in the public sphere, uh, and uh, about uh, excellence, excellence amongst black people. This is the kind of thing that has made Justice Clarence Thomas, who has said these things in Supreme Court opinions affecting the laws of this country, into a pariah amongst many people. And I want, if you allow me, to ask you to speak to that. What I'm talking about, and I can tell you by illustration, is I'm asking you if you agree or not with Justice Clarence Thomas about these things because this is the U.S. Constitution that we're talking yeah, about. Okay, what specifically you said about Thomas? That's what I'm asking. Well, you know how his jurisprudence has been very skeptical of affirmative action, very skeptical of the use of oh, racial yeah, categories no, for him. And moreover, yes, moreover, how his life story, I mean, come on. You want to talk about the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project, so you want to talk about America about America's institutions, and you want to talk about black excellence. So now I'm talking about 
the longest serving justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, who is an African-American out of the Sea Islands off of Georgia, coming up through his own particular background, exactly in the same cohort as you, voicing the same things as you were voicing. And I've got you cornered. I've got you cornered, Bob, because my point, my ultimate point is that there are political implications. I'm talking about partisan political implications of your philosophical position. Let me tell you something, Glenn. When I took a position against force busing for integration in Westchester, Pennsylvania, the same people that you're quoting said to me, well, Bob, your position is consistent with that of the Klan and the John Birch Society. And That's my, what they say about Justice Thomas. Okay, okay uh, then, but my thing is just because if I like classical mu- music and Hitler does, am I supposed to not like classical music? You either stand for the truth or you don't. What I am saying is that I have seen affirmative action exploited by middle-class blacks all of my professional life. When I was with the Urban League and all of these con- contracts came down uh, where we affirmative action where I had contractors tell me that there's Alaskan pipeline, they have to uh, uh, give it, they gave it to a black. He takes 10% of it and then contracts it to the white firm. He walks away a millionaire. Meantime, blacks are not working. I can take you all day through other programs that were supposed to benefit the black community but it only benefited a few who exploited in the names of their people. I can sit here and I, I agree with that. I agree with that, Bob. Uh, you can't actually tell me a whole lot about that because I know awful lot about it. Because as you know, I have been living amongst these Negroes that you're talking about <laughs> my entire professional life. Yeah. Okay. I know personally hundreds of the people that you're talking about. Right. Every time so, I go to a faculty meeting, I'm sitting across from one of them. Mm-hmm, I see. Okay. Yeah, but Every time so, I show up at the Ford Foundation for a committee, I'm dealing with them. Yeah. Okay. So, so you know, the Harvard Business School, the Stanford Business School are overrun with these people. <laughs> the educational bureaucracy, the associates provost for diversity and inclusion, the Afro-American and African-American and Africana studies departments that have proliferated around this country. I know these people. So, so no, I, I'm not saying there's not an issue. I, I'm not saying that there's not an issue. I was trying to get you onto a different kind of ground, though, because what I'm saying is there's a, you write, you show up on Tucker Carlson. You show, you, you put your stuff in the hill. You have an affiliation with the Heritage Foundation. Now, these but are, also, these are but political also actors in an ongoing struggle. And I can even go to the point that Donald Trump is president of the United States. I'm not asking you how you vote. That's not what I'm asking you. That's not what I'm asking you. What I'm saying is, what about your people, the future of your people, and the political dynamic in which we're embedded right now? Okay. And where do you the come future, down? Well, where I come down is that everyone has their reference groups. My reference groups are the 2000. 500 grassroots leaders in these 39 states who are in those drug-infested, crime-ridden neighborhoods, what they believe about what I said means more to me than some any damn body else. And as long as my grassroots leaders who are suffering directly the consequence of the neglect, they are asking why we're, when they are being told that liberal democratic uh, uh, politicians who've been running these cities for 40 years 
why are our conditions continue to deteriorate? The great promise of the civil rights movement is elect us and we will be better than white folks. And I'm saying that many of them, you never hear anyone talking about those blacks who get con- convicted for, for tre- I call treason, moral treason against their people by stealing money that's supposed to go to help. For Kwame Kirkpatrick in Detroit and 34 of his fraternity brothers who were sitting in prison, but that's not a national scandal. I didn't even know it. Are you telling me I knew Kirkpatrick, Detroit? 34, 34 of, of his fraternity yes, brothers. Of his fraternity brothers and friends and consultants, a whole group of them convicted by an all black jury, sentenced by a black federal judge. That, no. and, that should and, have been and, the subject of a New Yorker uh, expose. Uh, that should there should be books on the shelves written by people who are uh, trying to unearth the uh, sociological uh, and and political foundation of that. If you had dozens of fraternity brothers, you had a widespread, systematic, organized uh, 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 enterprise of uh, these. Read it. Read and, it. And, uh, you know, I mean, and and that's not if that's a that's a, a fact about contemporary African American life. I didn't even know it, man. I I, I'm I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't know. That. It's even worse. What happened was one of his fraternity brothers took those pension funds and misused them to the point where there are thousands of black city employer uh, elderly, elderly people retired who a lot of their pension funds went to this. But that's not a national scandal. Yeah, when okay. Jefferson they, they use the finances of the city of Detroit as a personal uh, piggy bank for their fraternity uh, to engage in whatever. Okay, Read it. It's, yeah. it's a matter of public, but it's never a public discussion in the black community. William Jefferson at, at the time of Katrina and nine members of his family were indicted for stealing money that was supposed to go to poor blacks. But that's yeah, not a national scandal. Okay, but you know what they're going to say, man. You know what they're going to say. They're going to say uh, white people do it too, and why are you making a big deal out of black people doing it? Well, because if you're going to run for office, then be uh, call it truth and advertise. Say, I promise to be no more honest than white folks were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let, let, let me take you back to the grassroots leaders. I promise you I will be no more, no no better than the white folks who play something. See, practice truth and advertising and say, now vote for me anyway because I'm black. Okay, Bob. Right. I want to shift this back uh, to the uh, grassroots uh, organizers because this is about what the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise and the Woodson Center are about. And uh, you're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of people around the country with whom you have relationship and a working relationship and are a basis for your identity. You say you go back to where you uh, identify from, and those are people to whom you are accountable. So I want you to tell us a little bit about that. Well, because they, many of the grassroots leaders that I have been helping, uh, they are solution oriented. They, they don't care about the politics. And so what we have been doing is taking some of those old values that, that ha- helped black people prosper in the time of, of slavery and discrimination. We hear a lot from 1619 that somehow the problems that blacks are facing today of out of wedlock births and violence in their neighborhood is somehow a, a, a legacy of slavery and discrimination. This is a lie because when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. And I gave... What do you so mean by I, that? What do you mean by that? What I mean is that let's take Chicago and the Bronzeville section of Chicago. You know what that's like today. 
Well, back in 1929, in the city of Chicago, in a black community, we had 731 black-owned businesses. We had 100 million in real estate uh, assets. We had an out-of-wedlock birth that was just 15%. And I could take you to Durham, all around the country, uh, where they were islands of economic and social uh, excellence but in the black communities, when we were denied access to hotels, we built our own. And and when we were having, are you saying there's not black excellence in black communities today, Bob? Not no. You go look in look in Chicago. Go look in those, some of those same communities where we there was the question was back in 1929. Well, I was born. Excuse me. I was born in Chicago. I know exactly what you're talking about. And the black community has expanded from that area around Brownsville uh, on the near south side until the vast suburbs uh, around the south side of Chicago. Uh, yeah, so you can't, identify, you can't identify the black community, quote unquote, with no, the problems of Brownsville today. No, I'm saying to you that the, those centers of excellence went down in the 60s. They survived for 100 years after slavery. I'm just saying to you for 100 years after slavery, Black families were, were, were intact throughout all that period. Our elderly people could walk safely in our communities in the 1930s and 1940s without being fear of being mugged by their grandchildren. Our marriage rate during the, the 10 years of the Depression was highest of any other group. Our, 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 the, the communities were safe because of the moral character, the Christian values are being practiced. My point, Len, if we were able to achieve moral and spiritual excellence and our communities were safe uh, in a time where racism was enshrined in law and we had no political representation, if we could have, if we did it then, the question is, why can't we do it today? Okay, let me respond to that. First of all, let me say, I'm profoundly in sympathy with what you've been saying. That's my personal view. But my responsibility here at the Glen Show, Bob, is to respond to that. So let me respond to that. Um, yes, if you were to just draw a historical chart, you would see that the out-of-wedlock birth rate is higher and the proportion of kids living with two parents is lower, that uh, the influence of religious values is weakened, that um, the level of violence uh, and criminality is greater, Etc. You would see that. Uh, and yes, uh, the timing will line up with what you say, which is that uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s, there was a different sensibility in African-American social life than what it is that you see, especially amongst the poor. The timing will line up. But the problem is it, with your nostalgia Excuse me, I'm, I'm being the devil's advocate here. The problem with your nostalgia is that you can't push on a string. That is to say, here's the metaphor. I've got a fabric and it's uh, uh, unraveling and someone pulls on the string. And the more they pull, the more the fabric unravels until the structure is no longer there. Let's suppose you're right about the black community, quote unquote. And I'm going to leave aside all of the things that you're not analyzing about what is also going on in the world. And let's just suppose that you're right about the black community and the string has been pulled on. Then by my account, 
you answer your own question, why can't we be like what we were? Because you can't push on a string and reweave that fabric, Bob. Wishing doesn't make it so. But Glenn, Glenn, it starts with the expectation. Right now, all we're doing is saying to inner-city Black communities, exempting them from responsibility. It starts in your mind and in your heart. There, there are all kinds of responses to oppression. There are classic three. You can either identify with the oppressor, you can, you can just, uh, or you can respond by saying, I am not going to be what they are demanding of me. And the third is to acquiesce and just die. And so, so but, but it starts with your attitude. And our forebearers uh, were faced with, uh, they weren't, we aren't being lynched every day the way we were back then. Even in the face of those horrible conditions, oppressive laws, redlining, all that, we still own property. We're still able to raise responsible families. And so it, life, uh, your attitude starts with the expectation. But if you're well, we, do, we do own property. Uh, uh, African Americans are much richer now than they were 50 or 25 I'm years saying ago. To you, Glenn, I'm saying to you, what is there, there are two standards, which, which is troublesome to me. Uh, uh, all of the, Nicole Hannah Jones and all of those people who are writing in 1619, most of them do not live in these troubled communities, and, and yet they have a different level of expectation for their own children. She even said that her husband and her can provide whatever is missing in their environment. That is a expectation. But I find it troubling when we say to, to the black community that your problems are all external and you are exempt from any personal responsibility for controlling your own behavior, even with this pandemic. Um, uh, Reverend Barber and Cole Jones was on MSNBC. The whole time they talk about systemic racism, uh, inequality. Somehow those were the reasons that you have the, the, the disproportionate number of blacks who are dying from it. They refuse to apply the same standards to the black community as they're applying to the rest of the country. We're saying the way that you can control a pandemic is through personal choices that you make. You have got to control where you go, how you interact with people. But if you were to take the... Okay, take okay, the, Bob, let me, let, let me interrupt. I, I, I hear you and the audience hears you, man. I got to, again, pushing back uh, because that's my job, but also I think I really, I really do want to push back a little bit. Um, there's two things here. One of them is what do we do as black people? And you're right. The uh, constant litany of helplessness, of learned helplessness that comes from these people that makes us bobbles at the end of a string, pushed by the historical forces this way or that, and having no free agency or capacity to make our own futures, our own lives, is complete bullshit. It's extremely dangerous, and it must be opposed. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me about that. But there are two things here. One of them is what should black people do? How should black people be? What is our vision? Who are we? And at the end of the day, if you ask me, that's a spiritual question, okay? Whether you ascribe to this religion or that, that's a question about meaning, about the deepest existential questions that confront a reflective human being and a reflective person of African descent. There's that question. And I agree with you about that. 
And this is why I was asking you about Justice Thomas, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but there's also the political question. The political question is not what should we African-Americans do, it's what should we Americans do. Now, you cannot begrudge uh, Ben Barber or Hannah Jones for wanting to put a thumb on the scale on behalf of their people in the political conversation about what should be done. Now, the issue then would become, because they're addressing themselves to the entire country, what is to be done, okay? Okay. Now, if you've got something better to suggest about that than Hannah Jones and Barber, that should be the thing that we should be talking okay. about. Well, but, and I'd love to. Yeah, what they're advocating is the same thing that has failed for 40 years. Just vote Democratic, ask for more government programs, ask for reparations. You got, you got millionaire football players who seven years after they lose, leave the league are broke. And you're going to tell us the problems of out of wedlock birth and violence can be solved by giving more government programs or reparations? No. My solution is to go around what we do around the country, go into these drug-infested, crime-ridden neighborhoods and find healthy antibodies. The the sickest part of the body, Glenn, attracts the strongest antibodies. What the Woodson Center does is go in these communities, find grassroots leaders who have the moral authority to be um, uh, spiritual and moral mentors to their peers, and they create islands of excellence. In within, I have one that I tell people, go on 60 Minutes and, and type in Bertha Gilkey 60 Minutes. You will see an example that we help create. And there are about five or six other models of how self-development can, can occur from within the communities, reducing teen pregnancy, stopping the violence, transforming and redeeming people by the hundreds. So what we need to do as a nation is look for these strengths, islands of excellence, and invest in them. Some of you scholars need to show up and ask questions about capacity and not just do failure studies, but ask how we, we need to be, it should be a center at a university on the study of resilience, and, 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 and we need to have study of resilience and stop just talking about the pathology of people. Okay, so here, here's, here, okay, okay. With great respect, because that sounded really, really good about empowering people, about finding antibodies in places of despair, about resilience, and, and about uh, being able to deal with these problems effectively on the ground. That sounded really, really good. But here's the thing. I mean, we got a Department of, uh, of uh, Health and Human Services. We got a Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, we got a state and a city agency for this or for that. Uh, we've got uh, uh, TANF, uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. We've got uh, Medicaid, a massive expansion of resources. If anybody uh, in the center or left becomes president or gets control of the Congress into health care for the disadvantaged, uh, et cetera. Okay, we've got an educational blob. I mean, a massive institution. We got a, a tens upon tens of thousands of teachers in a very powerful union. We got, et cetera. Okay, this is what we got. How do you get from where we got to where you want to be without politics? You cannot just preach. I want to know what the program is. Well, the program, as far as I'm concerned, again, uh, uh, that 
we have to, that's why I, I start with the name enterprise in my name in, in our name, because I believe that the principles that operate in our market economy ought to apply to the social economy. Now, and, and, and so innovation, I, I think George, it was George uh, Bernard Shaw asked the question, must the Christ die in torment in every age to save those that lack imagination? And Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge. What we need is a little more imagination. Uh, uh, 60% of Apple's income comes from a, 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 a product that did not exist seven or eight years ago. And it changed the face of the country. We need to look at the same level of innovation. If I can find a way of stopping gang members from terrorizing their communities and turn them into ambassadors of peace, so there's not, they go from 53 gang deaths in two years to zero gang deaths in 12 years, that to me is, is, is tantamount to a major breakthrough. And, and we were able to do this. But what we ought to do is in, in the marketplace, if it were, if, if it was a product, we would have rushed in, everyone would have invested in it, and we would have taken this to the whole country the way Apple did the iPhone. But so this is how we have got to think about it. There's another group, Glenn, that bet you no one ever studied, United House of Prayer. These are, they are, they are, 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 are small areas where there are groups of people that I bet you these are all blue-collar folks, Daddy Grace the Church. They own the land in the inner city. They're not gentrified out because they purchase that land and, and, and engage in the kind of practices that our forebearers used to do. So they are contemporary examples of the entrepreneurial spirit that existed 100 years ago is still in practice today. But again, no one... Uh, from your community ever shows up at, at the doors to ask how are they able to produce kids or not having children, even though they're blue-collar folks? How is it that they own land in gentrified areas? And, and But here, now this is another piece, too, going back to what we said earlier. Washington, D.C. has been controlled by black politicians for 40 years. 19,000 low-income blacks have been gentrified out of the city in the last 20 years. How is that happening? Why aren't they held accountable for that? But no, we're talking about systemic racism, uh, injustice. That's because I'm telling you, this is, this is such a superficial issue when it comes to issues like economic development, gentrification, you know, it's it's almost a that 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 we are playing games with ourselves, talking about injustice and and racism, and systemic racism. I mean, this is such a superficial kind of issue. But let let me now, can I, if I may, since this is the Blitz Show, I go. I'm going to take a little time, uh, react a little bit, and this is not critical. This is affirmation. I'm I'm in so much profound agreement with you, and I want to give my view. And my view is that social capital is important. This is where I think you're coming from ultimately in my, in my theory, in my idea. Uh, institutions are important. Informal institutions are important. The family is a fundamental starting point. Uh, the community, the neighborhood, neighborhood structures, churches, community organizations, these are fundamental. Uh, finding leadership at the grassroots organizing people at the grassroots to empower them, this is fundamental. 
Uh, development is fundamental. In other words, the outcomes that we see, whether it's incarceration or teenage pregnancy or dropping out of school or uh, getting uh, HIV, are not just things that fall on people by willy-nilly. Neither are they the result of some magic ray coming out of a racist ray gun. (laughs) They are the results of the behaviors of the people involved, and those are things for which those people are responsible. The fact of injustice, of unfairness, which you are not denying in the least has afflicted Black people, does not remove that responsibility. Uh, and you, I could go on in that vein, but but uh, personal responsibility is important. You're uh, worried that the racial grievance industry, I know that's a phrase that you probably have coined, uh, but people will know what I'm talking about when I say it. Uh, there's the intellectual and journalistic part of it, of which a Hannah Jones or a Ta-Nehisi Coates is an uh, aspect. There's the bureaucratic and professionalized part of it, of which all of these middle-level uh, uh, people working in these various social service bureaucracies whom you've, uh, you know, excoriated uh, uh, belong and whatnot. Uh, the profoundly ineffective, hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of dollars poured down a rat hole without, uh, without effect, without getting to the root of the thing. And I'd add to all of this that the intellectual environment is impoverished that the editorial pages, that the newspapers don't get it, that the universities don't scratch the surface of of doing what they should be doing in a responsible way in dealing with these problems, that the political classes mouth platitudes and and slogans uh, and play race cards. And and the way that you see the white liberals playing the race card left and right uh, as just a way of getting these people's votes and the way you see, we have to say it, don't we? The Democratic Party take these votes for granted and so on. You don't believe in socialism. I'm sorry, Bob, but I believe that's an implication of what you're saying. You're a Christian. Again, I don't mean to out you, but I think that's very important to win. <laughs> very, very important. Okay. Here we are now, and I'll stop. All the way two decades into the 21st century, the civil rights movement ended in the 1960s or the 1970s at best. My God. If our people don't wake up, I'm talking about black people and I'm talking about the American people. Uh, we are uh, in for a very sad uh, landing here, a very, very bad accounting. I think we're losing, Bob, notwithstanding your efforts. I want you to respond to that. I agree with you. But, but you know, I don't have any choice but to be optimistic. Either that or <laughs> <I'll> be... <laughs> there's no other way out. I have to believe it because I have seen evidence of it every day. And as I go in these low-income communities, I see islands of excellence just shining. And my challenge is to excite the American public so we can ignite a kind of, uh, of, of excitement so that somebody with a lot of money and a lot of power will say, you know what, we are, we are raising up inner-city black kids who are being told that they live in a country that hates them and that such things as whether the list that they have, competition is racist, uh, 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 capitalism is racist. They're being taught these ways. Can you imagine after eight years of this, these same young people are going to be asked to defend their country against foreign uh, uh, hostiles? Why would they do that if we're teaching them to be um, that America hates them and therefore they should hate America? Also, Glenn, is having a practical uh, 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 problem that 60% of the 
of police forces are now having difficulty recruiting people to the point where 911 calls are not being responded to. That's not something that's going to just adversely affect the black community. So the race grievance industry is really contributing to the decline of this country and our ability to defend and protect ourselves. So for those who may not be motivated the way I am, your own self-interest ought to motivate you to begin to challenge what uh, we are challenging in these times. So, I mean, I, 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 I am convinced, I am hooked on optimism because every time I go into these communities and I see my grassroots leaders achieving against the odds, I see some powerful examples of restoration and redemption and, and I see safe uh, people change and become transformed. I said, I want this for everybody. But there's, there is a common thread because uh, it isn't just a matter of wealth because, as you know, in um, Silicon Valley, among wealthy families where you have two-parent households with master's degrees, a median income of 180000 the teen suicide rate is six times the national average. And so, therefore, and then that that 17-year-old who, uh, I mean, the mother who lost her 17-year-old daughter to suicide has more in common with the 17-year-old girl who was shot to death in public housing. One's problem isn't privilege and the other wasn't uh, inequity. So in order for us to come together to fill that emptiness that is within the soul of people, we must push race aside. And so I'm hoping that people will, 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 will do this for any number of reasons along the whole social and economic spectrum, either because it's threatening our public safety, either because there's an emptiness, a moral emptiness that must be filled. And we won't do it as long as we allow the race hustlers uh, and extremists on both sides to prevail. Okay, Bob, that's wonderful, man. Uh, I just want to underscore a, a few things you said, or maybe come back to touch on some points, because there's so much there. Uh, you're optimistic, okay, because you're seeing work on the ground that is giving you hope and, and inspiring you, and you believe in people. Uh, you're concerned about our public safety because you think that the message that's coming out of some of the critique of America, such as is exemplified by the 1619 Project, and by, by the way, as you know, this is the New York Times. This is the establishment of American culture. This mm-hmm. is a massive infusion into a curriculum of schools all throughout this country in terms of how to tell the American story. This is a real fight about the American story, about the narrative, about how we understand the country. And in the context of that fight, you position yourself as a patriot. I'm sorry, but again, I don't yeah. know how to deny that. You're going to run from that. Because it sounds to me like it's a patriot. It sounds to me like 1776 is affirming something, okay? It sounds like believing in America, not just believing in grassroots people in the communities where you're working, believing in the country, perhaps believing that it's an exceptional country, but perhaps believing that it basically is a good country. Okay? Absolutely. Worth serving, excuse me, worth fighting and dying for, okay? This is the implication that I'm taking out of what you're saying. Okay, black people are not to be taught to hate our country. Why don't we just say that? Okay, we are not to be taught to hate our country. The fact of slavery, I'll say it for a third time, are not redound in the 21st century in the indoctrination of our children 
into an attitude toward their country of contempt, of skepticism, of disdain, of not belonging. That's a mistake. It's a profound political and moral error. It betrays our ancestors. I want to finish this. Teaching our children that America isn't worth loving and dying for betrays the sacrifices of our ancestors who fought and died for it and for our freedom. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. If you look at all of the, my father was a veteran of the civil rights um, of the, of the second, first world war. He fought with that New York in, uh, division in Europe and, and all of these wars that we have fought, there's never been a black, uh, convicted of treason throughout that, that time. So for people today, you're betraying the sacrifices that they have made. Uh, in, in the Second World War, the, the, we said a double victory. We fought against fascism abroad and racism uh, in, uh, uh, in, in the country. Yes, we are patriot, and the same principles of patriotism is what's making our grassroots leaders effective. Uh, let me just uh, uh, read a little from it, from from uh, Samuel Adams. He said, "A general dissolution of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of a common enemy. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when they lose their virtue, they'll be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader." Neither the wisest constitution or the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. Our forebears understood that. Okay, Bob, again, I I want to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Duly noted, profound point about the importance of value and integrity of family uh, as the foundation for our liberty. Profound point. But I don't want to leave dangling the thing that we were talking about before about patriotism, because I want to anticipate the following response. You can't, you and Lowry and Woodson, be asking us to be uncritical patriots. We are not being unpatriotic by being critical. We want the whole whole history, not just the prettified history. And so I want to go a step further because there's a fight going on right now in the universities in the political correct culture in terms of who makes movies and what gets on TV, uh, in the political uh, discourse about who gets a Democratic nomination and what do they say. What do you think about Black Lives Matter? Okay, I mean, I really mean that as a literal question to you, but I also mean it as a rhetorical question. The whole upswing of what I asked you about Malcolm X and you didn't answer. Malcolm X is now, Malcolm X is now a more uh, 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 powerful uh, icon in the imaginations of young black people, then it's Martin Luther King Jr. I'm sorry, but that's just true. Okay? So so I want to get this idea about critical. Do black Americans have a prophetic witness to America? This is what Cornel West would say, whom I respect. Do we have a prophetic witness on the basis of our struggles and travails to throw up something profound? You're a moral man. Ben Barber is a moral man. I don't think you would deny that. He believes, I assume, that there's something in the experience of African-Americans of a critical character that needs to be taken on board. If that were all they were trying to do at 1619 was to leaven the curriculum with some dimension of critical perspective, that would be one thing. But that's not all they're trying to do, okay? I allege that they are actually trying to subvert the narrative. We're going to focus on Jefferson and Sally Hemings. 
We're not going to focus on the declaration. What's that? What's that? We're going to make Lincoln into a, a racist. That's what uh, 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 Ava DuVernay did, practically. We're going to make Lincoln into a racist. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you can, <laughs> where am I coming out? Where I'm coming out is I don't trust the motives of these people. No. Uh, I think they are far off in terms of their basic ideological foundation. Uh, and I think, you know, the immigration issue is another issue that will bring this to the fore. Again, I don't expect you to take a position because you're being a politician on me. But it seems to me that your, your, your work has an implication uh, for that. Yeah, see what what I'm what I'm worried about, and I and because I really I want my grassroots leaders to understand that what has enabled them to become antibodies is the embrace of the American values of our founders. They are a living embodiment of everything that our founders said, Adams and others. They are a living embodiment of it, and people are motivated to change when they see victories that are possible not just constantly remind them of injuries to be avoided. And also, my grassroots people teach by witnessing to those principles. And so, to me, a witness is more effective than an advocate. And and so what we're trying to do at the, at the 1717 Woodson Center is allow grassroots people to speak for themselves. These middle-class people like like uh, Nicole Anna Jones and the rest of them, Hannah Jones and others, they don't speak for the people that I represent. We need to allow these people to speak for themselves. And nothing undermines the moral authority of someone who advertises himself as an advocate for black people to have those same black folks stand up and say, she does not represent me, nor does she speak for me. That's why what we're trying to do at 1776 is put a microphone and a camera in front of grassroots leaders who are living these uh, redemptive values so that they can speak to for themselves and you will watch how the opposition will go away as long as we have to be concerned about not only the message but the messenger. And I, I know my grassroots people, what they're asking for is give them the tools, give them the opportunity to be civic uh, teachers of their own peers because thousands of grassroots people look to these indigenous leaders for leadership. They are the human capital that we need to, to, to process. So we're trying to put the, the information, the knowledge that someone like you have, Glenn, we need to put it into the hands of grassroots leaders so they can make the same point to their constituents as you're making to the general public. There's a lot packed into there, all about a class uh, stratified uh, effort to uh, authentic, authentically represent the interests of needy people. Uh, I think, you know, it could be said that it may not be fair to say of a Hannah Jones or a uh, ta Coates or somebody like that, that they don't live in the ghetto. No, they don't live in the ghetto. Nobody who writes for newspapers and has books published and goes on TV lives in the ghetto. Almost nobody it can't be that if you don't live there, you have no idea for or no right to speak for. Uh, there's all kinds of mediation uh, that goes on in, in, in political life. So maybe it's a little bit of a cheap shot. But on the other hand, that 
They might propound uh, policies that have very little to do with the lives of people, uh, have more to do with their own celebrity or their own professional ambition than it has to do with uh, practical problem solving, that they might be in a bubble, that they might be elitist who are disconnected from those people. Uh, and all of that certainly certainly could be true, and I think it, is, I think it actually is. Well, let me make a quick point here. Yeah, but, but why don't you conclude? Because we've gone on no, more than an hour. That's about the length of uh, one of these conversations. No, but I just want to make a point. It's not a matter of whether you live with somebody. You know, Jesus said you don't have to live with them, serve them. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that they take positions that, that of which they don't have to suffer the consequence of those positions. When you denigrate the police, for example, yeah. and call them occupiers so that there is police nullification, so the police are not uh, 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 enforcing the laws equally. I remember 11 years ago, I wrote about this in Cincinnati, where Al Sharpton and the others came in when a white cop shot a teenager, you know, and they accused him of racism, so the police were less aggressive. The murder rate in the low-income areas of Cincinnati went up 800% but not in the communities where the preachers and the civil rights people live. So the, and so then the people who were losing jobs from the boycott, who were waitresses and taxi drivers, they're saying, so, so my point is I, I'm against people who advocate positions that have dire consequences for people, but that they don't have to suffer the same consequence as the people in whose name they're advocating. That's my point. Yeah, uh, Bob, thanks for making it. Uh, and uh, I don't want to rush you off the stage. Uh, and I want to reiterate, I, and I so much agree with what you're saying about public safety and low-income Black communities, about the role of the police in the creation of public safety, about the extent to which the political debate, and you are talking about Black Lives Matter, even though you're not naming them. And you're not right, just talking yeah, about I, Black I Lives Matter. I think they're horrible. They're the you're, you're, talking about, you're not just talking about them. You're talking about the entire liberal establishment. Exactly. Okay? You're talking about the foundations in New York City that give away millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. You're talking about a political establishment that's centered in the Democratic Party. You're not exactly. talking about William Barr. I'm sorry, Bob. You're not talking about the Attorney General of the United States because he just speeches agree with what you just said. You're talking about the Democratic Party's position. You're talking about mothers of the movement. When Hillary Clinton brings these mothers onto the stage and they go through that thing, that's what you're talking about. And you're saying yes. you're saying it's costing black lives. You're, you're saying that people do not have to suffer the consequences of those costs who are advocating this. And you're saying that the legitimacy bestowed by the white establishment on these voices for black people does earns them condemnation, the establishment, the newspapers, the foundations for riding their own political and ideological hobby horses on the backs of your people. That's they, what are, the, they are the real white supremacists. <laughs> I want us to end on that. We are not equivocating over here, okay? This no. is what we think. This is what we believe. This is what we're working for. Thank you, Bob, for coming on the Glenn Show. And thank you. I'm honored, Glenn.